We're looking at Colossians 3, 1 through 4, which we'll read again and then finish up uh, that subject today. If you then be risen with Christ, and if you trust Jesus, you have been, you are. Then seek those things which are above, where Christ is sitting on the right hand of God. Set your affection, your, your minds, on things above, not on things on the earth, because you have died, past tense, and your life is hid, present tense, with Christ and God, future tense, when Christ, is our li- who is our life, shall appear, then you shall, in the future, also appear with Him in glory. Mortify, therefore, your members which are upon the earth. And so beginning in verses 5 through the rest of the chapter, we'll begin to see the ethical implications, the moral implications, the godly or holy implications on your life when, in fact, you are setting Christ uh, who is above uh, in your affections, your, your hearts and minds, and when we're seeking those things above. So we looked at this morning, uh, we are to set our minds on heavenly realities. And we looked at five in, this, in these verses that speak of past tense realities that are true today for us in Christ. And so moving ahead, Paul wants to secure the saints in this reality to make sure their striving is a striving of grace, out of grace, because of a past tense completed action once for all done, you are in Christ. Secondly, set your mind in heavenly places. We looked at the word set your mind, one Greek word, which means to have a predominant or prevailing attitude, tendency. It's a mindset, it's a disposition, sometimes translated mind, sometimes translated savor, and here translated uh, set your affection on things above. And so we looked at what it means for Christ to be our life our lives, or life rather, singular. He is our life in that He is to be central, important, loved, treasured, sought after, chased, hunted, thought after. He's to shape and influence our life uh, in our thoughts and our affections. And then we begin to look at relation to this in Matthew 6.33 using the word first. How do we set our minds upon Christ? First, we set our minds upon Him in order. He's the priority. And then we looked at time. We're to do that early. If something happens that we can't do it early in the day, then we do it later. But we are setting Him as the priority early, earnestly, and even painstakingly because to be a Christian means a battle. It means there's challenges, there's difficulty, there's pain, there's heartache, there's tears. But it's all worth it in Christ. Now, two more under the heading of setting your mind in heavenly places to set your your thoughts, your hearts on Christ because this is a command to think on Christ. It's a command to fellowship with Christ who is in heavenly places and seated on the right hand of God. So we're to set our minds on Him our affections on Him. So, two more with a, in relation to the word first in Matthew 6.33. And that would be first in terms of place. Place. Order, time, place. Place. Two implications there. One, He's to be 
first in the place of supremacy. Now we saw that in Colossians 1.18, right? Who is the head of the church, which is his body, the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things, universally, he might have the preeminence, that he might have the supremacy, that he might have that central place in our hearts and our affections, which requires us then to set and to seek. That's not our default mode. That's not something we can wake up and simply expect to be present upon waking in the morning. That is something to seek after, something to pursue, something we have to set our minds upon. So he's to have the place of supremacy. That's the first implication. The second is it's in the place of your heart. And of course, we've, we've talked about mind, which would include heart, but speaking of heart, what would that mean exactly? If Jesus has supremacy in your heart, in a way that you're, you're seeking that, you're pursuing that, and you've come to the place where you've decided to follow Jesus, you've decided to trust in Christ, and I recognize somebody can use that song to, to sort of exalt the will, but have you decided? You've made the decision. I want to follow Christ. So he's to be or to have the supremacy in my heart. And I'm to seek him to have that place of supremacy, that place of being first. Then what would that mean? Well, you remember in the Old Testament more than one occasion, God spoke to Israel to tell them either that was to be the case or when it wasn't the case. And you'll find this in Jeremiah chapter 29. The entire Babylonian captivity was owing to the fact that God did not have the place of supremacy in their hearts. And so God says so through the pen of Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 29 where he's telling them years before the captivity when they return he's going to tell them what the 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 place the position of God's supremacy will be in their hearts when they return from the captivity. And so you know these words beginning in Jeremiah 29, verse 11. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, the plans, saith the Lord. Thoughts or plans of peace and not of evil. It would seem that way because the evil Babylonians and Nebuchadnezzar came and wiped out the city and took them captive to Babylon. It would seem that God's plans, sometimes for you and I, are indeed evil when we're looking through our own natural eyesight. So God assures them it's not of evil, it's peace to give them an expected end, or a hope is the word. So that's one thing, just to mention there, that whatever befalls you, because you're in Christ, no matter what it looks like, no matter what it feels like, in the circumstances and the pains and the tears and the trials of your life, God is always aiming at your hope in Him. He's always aiming at it. There's never a moment in your life where God in His sovereign providence wills that something touch your life, very painful, but that He is not planning plans of peace and planning plans to give you an expected end, an end called hope in Scripture. So this is the outcome. This is the hope that God is after. Verse 12, Then shall you call upon me. I will be in the place of supremacy. You'll first call upon me. You'll go and pray unto me. I will have the place of supremacy. 
and then I will listen to you, implying that God had shut his ears off to Israel. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear, the prophet says. So God says, you'll seek, you'll you'll call, you'll pray, I'll listen. And in verse 13, you shall seek me and you will find me. And that's our subject, isn't it? What, what, are, what are we doing with heavenly mindedness? We are setting and seeking things above. We are seeking Christ. We are setting our minds on Christ. We want Him to have the place of supremacy. Then you shall seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. And I will be found of you, saith the Lord. So God is going to act. God is going to plan in such a way that he is going to bring this about. Now, Israel could argue, and maybe you and I could argue too, it says. Uh, this would be their argument because they had all of the ceremonial law. They could say, Lord, when, when did we ever leave you? You know, if you are going to return to somebody, the implication is you left. And they might say, Lord, we stayed right in Jerusalem the whole time, and you swept us away into captivity. We were going to temple worship. The temple was standing. We adored the temple and we went there and we brought the sacrifices, both morning and evening sacrifices, just like you said we should do. Why or how is it that we possibly left you? Well, we know in Jeremiah 2.13 that the people of Israel had committed two evils. And one of those evils was they had forsaken, they had left This is where they need to return from. They had left the fountain of living waters. The second evil, they digged wells that will hold no water. Israel's heart was divided. In one sense, they were fully on board with God because with their mouths, they honored Him, and with their lips, they praised Him, but their whole heart had left the Lord. And they were digging wells of polluted water, expecting those wells to do only what God alone can do. How was God going to overcome this? We start to see images or signs of this throughout Isaiah and Jeremiah, how God is going to act with true Israel to overcome their their polluted, well-seeking ways and their forsaking of the God who is the fountain of life and light and goodness, who is the fountain of living waters, cool, pure water, and exchanging it for the waters of the polluted world. What will God do to overcome that? Jeremiah 24, 7. I will give you a heart to know me. Implied what? You will know my supremacy. And then you will seek me and you will find me when you search for me with your whole heart, all your heart, with your entirety, with the totality of your being. Don't take wholeheartedness to mean holy without sin. A divided heart is where the lips and mouths are moving to the praise of God and we're singing praises to God, but the heart has moved distant away from God. 
If we're seeking Christ and giving Him the place of supremacy in our hearts because He's first, and we're seeking that because that's, a, that's something to be sought, right? What are the implications of knowing God? And what are you actually seeking, beloved? This is so important to know as Christians. God says, you'll, you'll search for me and you'll find me when you search your whole heart. Well, what, what do you expect me to find, God? What are you going to find? What are you after? What are you looking for? What do you expect? This is the expected end. Are you going to say, well, is that it? Is that, is that, I just find God? What does God expect you to find when you give Him supremacy in your heart? Well, you'll know God. Jeremiah 31, the the covenant of grace is, they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. And I will remember their sins and iniquities no more. So God is going to overcome our polluted, well-drinking ways in forsaking Him as the fountain of living waters by putting the knowledge of God in our hearts and writing His laws within our hearts from the least to the greatest, which Jeremiah 6 and Jeremiah 8 tell us exactly what that means. Because Israel was from the least to the greatest given to what? Covetousness. Those parallels are not accidental with the pen of Jeremiah. He's not trying to think of a good way to express from the least to the greatest. When God says, you'll know me from the least to the greatest, He means I will overcome your covetousness from the least to the greatest because you'll know me in such a way, the place of supremacy, that you'll be satisfied with all that I am. If that is true, what then are the implications for seeking Christ who's seated seated at the right hand of God? It is seeking to have your soul so saturated with Christ, His love, knowing Him, giving Him the supremacy, making Him the priority in everything that we do, that we begin to experience more and more that peace and love, and the satisfying presence of the wells of living water that Jesus says is not outside of you, but is gushing up within you. Wells of everlasting life, for which the harlot in John 4 was not drinking from until she met the supremacy of Christ. And now she dropped her bucket because she found another bucket called a well of living water. That means gloriously, beloved. When God says, you'll search me with your whole heart, He means you need to search Him as that fountain. You need to search Him as the one that will fulfill the longings of your soul. You need to be like David and to thirst after and to long after to see the power and glory of God that you've seen in the sanctuary because David expects to see that to bring the thirst-quenching satisfaction to his soul that he is making analogy with the dusty, dark caves of Adullam or Adullam. So throughout Scripture, God is telling us that to make him the place of supremacy is not to give up all that you love, or rather all that you think will bring you what fulfills, but to give up those things because they cannot provide or supply to gain 
what you will keep forever and will always. When Jesus gives the image of a, of a well gushing up into everlasting life, what is the imagery? It just it keeps coming. You drink and there's more to drink. You finish the day drinking and you wake up and there's still more for us to seek. And you do it again, the next day there's infinitely more water for us to take in and drink. Everything that Paul is going to say, beginning in verse 5, is flowing out of relationally being attached to Jesus in that way where we're seeking and striving and struggling and warring and fighting and repenting and all those words that express what a life of seeking God means is going to be the power to kill sexual sin. How? Can, is that possible? Only when Jesus is the well that becomes superior to all sexual sin or all angry words. Two categories Paul will give us. So the, these four verses become critical. In Isaiah 55, verse 6, uh, Isaiah will say there, God speaking, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord. And he will be merciful. And to our God, he will abundantly pardon. Right? So to seek the Lord where he has the place of supremacy, to seek Christ, is then to forsake your way and your plans. The word means abandon. Just abandon all my plans? I mean, what's wrong? I, I just planned to work here. I, I was planning to marry her. I was planning to buy that house over there. And I was planning to drive just kind of a modest car. I mean, that's my plan. Why do I have to abandon my plans? What Isaiah is saying is, it's not that you have to abandon the place of work, the person you want to marry, the car you want to drive, or the house you want to live in. You have to abandon that as a means to being satisfied. You have to abandon that as the means of being satisfied. How do you know that? Because of the context in Isaiah 55. Why do you buy bread and you work for that which can't satisfy why are you working at your job as if you think that's the means of bringing what it cannot bring? Why are you living in marriage as if you think marriage is really the ultimate end to your happiness? Why are you involved in that hobby, that event, that thing in such a way you think that is going to bring you what you're looking for? So he's not saying abandon your wife or abandon your husband. He's saying abandon the idea that that is going to give you ultimate pleasure. It's not. It's a pointer. Everything is a pointer to ultimate reality, who's Christ, and your marriage fits that context. Creation points to ultimate reality. Marriage points to ultimate reality. And when we try to make the shadow reality the ultimate, the shadows let us down miserably, and they will let some people down eternally, forever, because they thought the shadows that they dug in the sand would be water to satisfy. And then the sun sets and it's gone forever. But you know differently. Because God, by His covenant of grace, has opened your eyes to know Him as the fountain. And so to seek Him that way, 
To seek Him so that He may have the place of first supremacy in the heart means I'm seeking you to be my greatest joy and my greatest peace and my greatest satisfaction. All other competitors find a place under that. All other joys which we enjoy, that we can enjoy, are to be put under the place of supremacy. Because He's the head. He's the beginning. He's the firstborn. He's to have the preeminence. Which means He's to have the preeminence in our affections. So set your affections. Set yourself to seek Jesus in such a way that you're asking God alone to do what He can do. Make yourself a fountain of living waters to my soul and I'm asking you to satisfy my soul. And He'll do it. Little by little. Little by little. Or I'm misinterpreting these texts. So he's to have the place of supremacy and that place is to be in your heart. And then finally, first, in importance. What would this wholehearted commitment look like? Really in terms of the first we've talked about, order, time, place, and now importance. Importance means has the greatest value. Of course, everything we've been talking about means when Christ has the greatest value, then He's the one that we seek above all other things. We, we're seeking other things. We, we, we're required to, but He is the one we seek in all things. It would look like Matthew 13, 44, where Jesus says, The kingdom is also likened to a man that was, paraphrasing, walking through a field, and he finds a treasure. And for joy, he hides the treasure, goes back and sells everything he has, then may come and buy the field. All right? So the treasure became important to him, became greatest value. And so he prioritized the treasure. How did he do that? He, he stopped everything he was doing. He's walking in the field. Maybe he's going home. Maybe he's going to dinner. Maybe he's going to work. None of that matters anymore right now. You know, the priority is I found a treasure. Second, third, fourth, and fifth, that, that's still there, but the party is the treasure. Order. Time. Early and earnestly. He didn't wait till he was 30 or 40. He didn't wait after he went to college and said, when I get settled, I'll start seeking. I don't know how old he was. It doesn't tell us. Well, for argument's sake, let's say he's 15. How's that? Well, I can come look at this treasure when I'm 30. I can think about seeking Christ when I'm 35, when I get settled, maybe even 40. I've got so much to do. Right then, time. He sought it early and earnestly. How earnest is this? He goes back and sells everything. Supremacy. Everything he owns becomes loss and dung for the excellency of the supremacy of Christ Jesus, which is the treasure, his Lord. So this treasure is first in priority, is first early and earnestly, and now it's first in the place of supremacy because he divests himself of everything to have the treasure. And how valuable was it? It was because of joy that he did everything he did. He had joy over the treasure. If he had seen the treasure and said, that's not such a big deal. I've seen greater treasure than that. I've got all kinds of possessions and things in my house. It's far greater than that. I'm just going to keep on walking past that penny. I'm not picking down to pick that up. No, he hid it. 
and went back and bought the field and the treasure. Joy. So what was he after? He was after the joy that comes from possessing the treasure. What are you after when you seek Christ? Well, if I put what you're saying together, I guess I should be after joy. If not, you belittle the supremacy of Christ. Just like you belittle a treasure that these treasure hunters are looking for and they, they, they go on the seas and they, they find the Titanic and, and they want to dig it up and there's some treasure chest there and they get it up on, on the ship and the, their, their hearts are pounding they open it and they go, ah, oh, I'm so disappointed. The treasure is not honored by the response. Neither is Christ if He's not seen as truly the joy that He is. Let those that seek Thee rejoice and be glad in Thee. Let, let such that love Thy salvation say, The Lord be magnified. Psalm 40 and Psalm 70. Let those that seek Thee rejoice and be glad. Why? Because there's no greater treasure than Jesus Christ. So God says, if you seek me, you need to be glad and rejoice. Let those that love thy salvation, which is what? God. If you rejoice in seeking God, you love his salvation because salvation is God. The centerpiece of heaven is Christ, where he's seated at the right hand of God. Whatever else is there, it's Christ centered, loved, enjoyed, treasured, embraced. Let those that love thy salvation say continually, the Lord be magnified, because God is magnified when? When you're rejoicing and glad in Him. And when you love Him. When is God not magnified? When the well that we're digging is giving us some short-term gladness and joy. And I love that well of polluted water. Now His glory is belittled. And that's evil. The essence of evil is not what you do to your neighbor. And not even some of the most horrific things that are done to people in our society. That's evil, but that's not the essence of it. It is to drink from another fountain and say, ah, and forsake the God of heaven. That's evil, according to God. I wouldn't call it evil, but you and I aren't divine and God is. So, beloved, let us seek as we talk about mortification and we talk about the unity of the saints and putting on Christ and all the ethical instruction that follows, let us not abandon this transitional or transitional verses that tell us to set and to seek. And then finally, set your mind on the heavenly return. This is so important. See, because there are going to be some times where I'm... I know you can, you can quote Matthew 13, 44 all you want, but I'm just sitting here thinking... I feel so bad right now. That is not true of me. And that's true, isn't it? That's part of our experience. When we know I should be up here rejoicing, but I'm down here. Repentance is that way. Repentance is, there's a sweetness to it, but there's a real pain to it, right? When you come to the place to acknowledge your guilt and go before God, you just feel terrible. But there's got to be something sweet to it. Why? Because you're looking at Him. That's why you feel the guilt. If you don't see Him, there's no guilt. What's the problem? What's wrong with it? When you see Him like Peter did, and you 
see his eye-piercing gaze, Peter wept bitterly. Great sorrow. But it was sweet when Jesus said upon his resurrection, you go tell Peter. He's the only one he named by name. You go tell Peter, I'm risen from the dead. Wow. Sweet sorrow. So let God be magnified even in our sorrow. And even if we have joy set before us, which is the last point here. We're looking for Christ's return. And so in some sense, there's a lot of joy, a lot of peace, and a lot of satisfaction that's just still in front of us. It's just not, it's not here yet, right? It's not fully arrived. So to mortify sin and to be all the things that follow, we must remember when Christ, who is our life, you can say that in tears too, shall appear in the future, then shall we who are in Christ, we will appear with Him also. Where? In glory. That becomes the basis of mortification. It's as if Paul's saying, look, if you skip this verse, mortification's not going to work. It's just going to become that neglecting of the body, that will worship, that false humility and neglecting of the body, uh, not in any value to the satisfying of the flesh. In other words, the only thing it does is satisfy the flesh. Imagine that. Neglecting your body satisfies the flesh. It has no value in restraining the flesh. Because rules and regulations couldn't do nothing for your flesh. Oh yeah, they can rein in excesses. Can Congress legislate your fruit? Try that. Can Congress legislate fruit? No. They can't even legislate morality. Oh, they can put some framework around it to try to rein in excesses. But they can't do anything to the heart. So there's no way they can really stop immorality with rules and regulations. Now, I'm not for opening the floodgates and saying, hey, take anybody's property do whatever you want. No, for people that have a conscience that can rein in the excesses and keep them in check. But in their hearts, they're still the same. A rule and a regulation could do nothing for mortification, but a Christ can. And that's Paul's point. Only as we look toward His heavenly appearing, And what does that mean? You will be like Him. You will appear as He is. John says in 1 John 3, 2, Beloved, it doth not yet appear. It's not visible what we shall be. Well, you know that. When He shall appear, we should be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. The because there means you can't see Him unless you're like Him. Why not? Because God will never allow impurity to see His glorious presence. If He did, it would be an atomic meltdown. You would be disintegrated because sin cannot be in the presence of a holy God and live with Him. That's the aim of Christ dying for you to purify you, to bring you to God. How is He going to bring you to God? By wiping away every sin and purifying your soul. So we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. If we're not like Him, we'll never see Him as He is. If we're not like Him on that day, that means we're still like ourselves in our own image, which means we're not in Christ, but gloriously. We are called the sons of God, and now we are His sons and daughters, but it doth not yet appear, John says, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, 
for we shall see him as he is. And every man that has this hope of seeing him, or in our text, of appearing with him in glory, what are you doing with your life? You're talking about eschatology. I mean, you're rambling over eschatology. Fine, but that's not what you're doing. You're purifying yourself, even as he is pure. I like a good conversation about eschatology. Limited, because my brain's limited. But let's talk about purification. What are you doing to be more holy? That one is a little bit more personal, isn't it? Let's talk about these concepts outside of me. No, I want to talk about you. Okay. I'm not doing so well. How are you doing? Uh, that's some conversations we need to have too, isn't it? See, if you have this hope, then you're cleansing yourself even as Christ is cl- cleansed. How are you cleansing yourself? Because you're looking forward to the joy set before you. Jesus was not cleansing himself, but he did have joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down on the right hand of the majesty on high. There he is seated. Now, if he had joy set before him to be seated, what happened when he was seated? The joy that was before him became joy and realization. He's in fullness of joy, and he's in pleasure at the right hand of God. That is where we're going. And we have that hope set before us, It helps in part to keep us from being lured away with the pleasures of sin for a season because we say to philosophies and vain deceit, we say to the rudiments of the world, we say to the traditions of men, you can't satisfy me. You can't do it. Christ can satisfy me. And by the way, He will satisfy me. And the devil says, you're not so satisfied. You're hurting. You're in pain. You're crying. My Savior lives. And when He appears... I'll appear with him, and then my soul shall be satisfied forever. If you have that hope of being with Jesus, we sing that in a lot of songs. Abide with me, fast falls the even tide. And in that song somewhere, if I can remember, (laughs) there's a phrase that says, ever will be with the Lord. There it is. Will ever be with the Lord. Now, if that's true, if my hope is to ever be with the Lord, what about now? Well, not really now. I mean, I don't want to be with Him now, but ever I'll be with the Lord. No, that means now you want to be with Him. Oh, I want to see Him. Look upon His face. If I want to see Him and be with Him there, tomorrow morning when I wake up, I want to be with Him here. And I know there's something pushing against me. It's called sin. I need to be more pure because sin keeps me from seeing Him here. That's my problem. Jesus said, whatever comes out of the bucket, that's what was down in the well, right? Because out of the heart proceeds evil thoughts, murders, adulteries. I know my problem is the well of my heart and what comes out of the bucket of my mouth in life, it's because I am the problem. And so... To be involved in purification is to look in all the ways in this chapter where I am the problem and not you. When I'm looking at Jesus and seeking Him and setting my affections on Him, then He shows me more of those problems. And then heaven's purity begins to become mine progressively. Heaven's unity, heaven's reconciliation, heaven's language, heaven's songs become my experience more progressively. Why? Because... His appearing means I'll appear with Him in glory. 
And because I'm hoping in that appearing, I'm engaged in purification. Being with Jesus means that when He's with me, a lot of times the light that comes flooding through the window of my house and starts showing all the dust particles. You ever seen that sweeping? You think your house is clean? Sweep the floor, open the blinds when the sun is shining right through the kitchen and you'll see billions of dust particles. Close the blinds, turn the lights off. And fluorescent lighting, we look pretty good. So turn the lights on. Let the light of Christ come flooding into your soul, seeking, setting your mind, your affections on Him, and know that because you have died and you're hid with Christ and God, when He appears visibly, you'll appear with Him, you'll be satisfied forever. So on that basis of hope, what do we do, Paul? Mortify, kill, therefore. Let's pray. Father, You're a great God. Your Word is a precious treasure. We need Your help to see it. We need Your help in our meditation to be able to think on it in a way that it brings visions of Christ through the Word that delights our souls. We need You, Lord, if we're ever going to stop drinking from polluted fountains, which we still, amazingly, we still turn to, Lord. We still turn to often with the idols of our heart. Our idols... Our hearts are like idle factories, and Lord, we need you to help us. And you have said that you will. You bring grace, you bring help, you bring all that we need in Christ. He's seated at the right hand of God, and in Him we're complete, and in Him we're, we're dead. We've, ra- we've been raised, we are seated in the heavenly places with Christ, and when you appear, Lord, you're going to bring us gloriously with you. Help us now, just starting little by little tomorrow, maybe even today, Lord. Help us little by little to just put one foot in front of the other with regard to setting and seeking you and to move on this pathway or to start moving more progressively or maybe to return for the first time or maybe to do it for the first time, Lord. Whatever the situation of the hearts of everyone in this room, Lord, you know it and it's not hidden from you. May we all gloriously begin the walk in newness of life as Paul speaks of in this chapter. In Jesus' name.